The Ice Pod, a podcast about polar science and the people. Presented by Kirsten Werner from the International Coordination Office for Polar Prediction. From Bremen, Germany, hello and welcome to The Ice Pod, the podcast about polar science and the people. In this episode, uh, we talk to people who actually work in polar regions and need reliable weather and sea ice forecasts for doing what they do. My name is Kirstin Werner. I'm with the International Coordination Office for Polar Prediction. Our guest today is joining us from Australia. I think uh, she's close to Sydney. It's Nina Gallo. She is, amongst other things, uh, working as a tour guide in Antarctica. Hello, Nina. Nice to have you on this podcast. Hey, Kirsten. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Nina, it's almost evening in Australia. I think several minutes past six. How was your day so far? Oh, it has been a really fantastic day. We actually came out of two months of lockdown last night at midnight. So it's... It's been a very exciting day for us here, venturing out again for the first time in a while. So Nina, I mentioned already, so you're working as a tour guide, but you do many other things. You work as a writer, doing project management. If you have one minute for introducing yourself, what would you say? Oh, the elevator pitch. That's such a hard one. It's so <laughs> difficult, isn't it, to summarize everything in a minute. And I've already used quite a few seconds to say that. You can do two minutes. <laughs> oh, no, I think, you know, what I do in my mind can sort of be summarized by like what I love doing and what I care about is spending time in the natural world with people, sharing what I understand about the natural world and why it's so vital to our existence as humanity with people that I'm out there with. I think every job that I do is it's all about communication and appreciation for our connection with the rest of the planet. I think that really sums it up, even though the the means by which that happens can vary really dramatically. Sometimes it's on a ship in Antarctica, sometimes it's out in the desert in a tent, and sometimes it's just from my bedroom on a computer. But they all have, there's that sort of common theme, I'd say, that runs through it all. I see. And can you tell a little about your first connection to Antarctica? When did you set food for the first time there or how, how did it come that you're so, you know, an Antarctic person? Well, I think my first real memory of Antarctica was, it was actually when I was a kid. Here in Australia, we have a pretty strong connection to Antarctica and we learned about Antarctica in school. And I remember doing a, a school project and we had to put a poster together. And I don't remember much about it, but I remember these pictures of these like, grizzled Antarctic explorers. And I printed out a, um, like a color photocopy of a, um, $100 note, the Australian $100 note at the time in the 90s, which had Douglas Mawson on it. And Douglas Mawson is one of Australia's most sort of celebrated Antarctic explorers. And I remember that that really stuck with me, this image of this man. He was wearing a woolen balaclava and he just looked so kind of peaceful and, and rugged. And that was my first sort of exposure to Antarctica. But my first time uh, stepping foot on Antarctica was actually on my first job down there. So my first time visiting mm -hmm. Antarctica, I was actually working as a guide or a trainee guide. Yeah, back in 2014. How did it come that you got this job as a guide there? Oh, well, the short story is I basically just applied for it <laughs> like you apply for any other okay. job. Yeah, I'd been um, guiding for about five years in Australia 
And I'd just mm-hmm. finished a training course down in Tasmania doing a little bit more guiding training. And part of that was an expedition medicine course that was run by the University of Tasmania and the Australian Antarctic Division together. And so half of the participants were sort of outdoor rec guide people like me, and then the other half were um, doctors, so medical professionals who were training to head down to Antarctica and learning the kind of um, expedition element of their um, their trade. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just had a lot of encounters with people in Tasmania who worked in Antarctica. It's just it's the Australian kind of gateway city for Antarctica. It's where the Antarctic Division's based. And so it started to just seem like quite a not an outlandish, crazy thing to go and work in Antarctica. I had quite a few friends who worked down there already. And so when I Mm -hmm. finished that course, just one of the jobs I applied for was in Antarctica and I was lucky enough to get it. How did you feel that first time going there? Was there something, you know, different from whatever you've seen before? Oh, I mean, it's just, yeah, it is unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, Antarctica is just on a scale that is unimaginable and I'd, I'd never travelled by a ship like that before. I, the longest sort of journey by sea I'd ever done was I think I'd crossed once from the UK to Denmark or something on a ferry. So I'd never really mm-hmm. spent time on a, a ship in an expedition sort of capacity. I was completely, completely out of my depth. I was also really heavily drugged, unfortunately. <laughs> I was quite seasick. Um, okay. And so my first memories of Antarctica are a little bit hazy, but that could also be because it was quite foggy Um The Antarctic Peninsula, which is the part of Antarctica that most tourists visit, it's got a maritime climate and it's really quite misty and foggy a lot of the time. So when we first Mm -hmm. arrived, I remember my first time out on the Zodiac, they're those little black rubber boats we take out, and I wasn't driving one. I was just there as a sort of trainee on board with another driver. And we went out and it was really choppy and rough and the ocean was quite grey and kind of moody and we skipped across into the lee of some icebergs to kind of scoot around and see what we could find. And everything was just mist. All there was was grey, sea and mist and these icebergs. And then at some point during the cruise, the mist or the fog kind of lifted and all of a sudden mm-hmm. these mountains just appeared. And it was quite surreal because the fog lifted in this way where there was a layer of fog up above the ocean and then a layer of mountain and then a layer of fog above And it was Mm -hmm. just like this floating apparition of a mountain. It was so surreal and mind-boggling. And, yeah, I think the Antarctic landscape is like that. It's constantly surprising you and presenting you with things that you just kind of couldn't have imagined. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then it got you and you always wanted to come back, I guess, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. I kind of, I was always surprised at the end of each trip. We'd get back to Ushuaia and you'd be exhausted and you'd be just sort of sad to see everybody go and, I kind of expected after a while to just feel like I was done and I wanted to go home, but I just, I never did. I was always excited to turn around and, mm. and go back again. Yeah. Okay. Nina, you also brought some music. So uh, for the listeners of the iSport, um, the way it works. So for uh, Spotify, we will integrate the songs uh, that Nina brought. And also for uh, when you listen to us at Radio Weser TV, um, the German uh, community radio, And for the other podcast uh, platforms, we put the list from Nina in the show notes and you can go and find the song. And uh, Nina, the first song you brought is A Wise Woman from Moonchild. Why did you choose that song? The reason is Antarctica can be a pretty male-dominated place. And historically, it has been. Like all of the early explorers and scientists were men and women were quite excluded. We didn't actually have any Australian women visiting Antarctica or working there till the 1960s. 
So it's pretty Mm -hmm. new. Uh, But my experience working in tourism down there is that there are just so many inspiring, amazing women. And I picked this song just to celebrate the times that we've shared down there. And I suppose I just feel so lucky to have worked with them and learned so much from them. So that's why I picked this song. So Nina, working as a tour guide, can you explain a little what do you actually do, where you do you start the tours? Um, I think you go on some ships and then you go on some sites. Uh, can you yeah, explain a little? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the way it works is we meet our passengers in Ushuaia most of the time. Almost mm-hmm. all trips start That's in Ushuaia, which is... Argentina, right? Yeah, it's basically the southernmost tip of Argentina in Tierra del Fuego. Mm-hmm. And we meet there and they jump on the ship and we head across the Drake Passage, which is about 500 miles uh, down to the Antarctic Peninsula. And while we're travelling across the Drake, there's a whole lot of stuff to do on the ship. There's a whole lot of um, briefings that we need to give passengers. We need to tell them about the quarantine requirements of Antarctica. They've got really strong Mm -hmm. biosecurity laws to protect the environment from any sort of foreign invasions of like other kinds of plants. And... We also need to give everybody their rubber boots, their sort of waterproof warm boots. There's a lot of kind of just logistics and admin and operations that go on on the ship. Um, And then Mm -hmm. we also want to introduce them to Antarctica. So there's a sort of lecture series and most people on board have some kind of specialisation that they would deliver sort of presentations on. And we run entertainment as well. We run activities in the evening for passengers depending on the conditions. And then once we get down to the peninsula, we'll usually do our first landing on the South Shetland Islands, which is this kind of rocky archipelago just off the northwest of the Antarctic Peninsula. And so depending mm-hmm. on the conditions and what which landing sites are available, we like to do a first landing there because it's just um, a little bit closer and it means that we can often get out and off the ship a little bit earlier than we would if we went all the way to Antarctica. Yeah, so once we get to that part of the world, we're basically loading off the ship onto these small zodiacs. So they're like mm-hmm. rubber little rubber boats with outboard motors and they take about 10 people at a time and there are a couple of things we can do. We can either cruise around and just have a look at the coastline, find icebergs to take a look at, look for seals or we can actually take the zodiacs right to shore and then we land everybody on Antarctica or on little islands off Antarctica and we go for a walk. We can look at penguin colonies or check out the mosses on the ground and there are also some really interesting historical sites in Antarctica that (coughs) we can visit so we, we do that as well. Okay. Are you always lucky in finding the penguins or is it also that sometimes they are not there? Or So most of the penguins, they, they come ashore at roughly the same time of the year and they go mm-hmm. to established colonies most of the time. So most of the penguins are quite place attached and they'll actually return to the same colony year after year after ah, year. So we know okay. where the penguins are likely to be and there are specific landing sites where you're extremely likely to see at least some penguins. Mm-hmm. And depending on the time of year, you might see more adults or more chicks, or you might see both. Um, sometimes at the end of the year it's, or at the end of the season, all the adults have kind of fledged and taken off and it's just the chicks. But yeah, generally we have a pretty good chance of seeing penguins. Of all the different yeah. animals you could see in Antarctica, penguins probably the one that the ones that are the most predictable. Whales and seals are a little bit more incidental. Yeah. And what is the season you go there? I mean, it's Antarctic summer. When do you start the first of the expeditions? Yeah, the season officially starts in October, but the earliest I've been down is November. And then, Mm -hmm. and that still feels like quite early season. There's a lot of snow on the ground and penguins are still kind of coming in after the winter. And then the season runs until the end of March. 
And by that time, you can really feel the winter coming in and sea ice is starting to form and the days are much shorter. Okay, I see. And the weather probably gets worse and uh, you have to look at the weather very much. And we will talk about that um, also in a bit. I was also wondering um, which experience or expertise do you need as a tour guide in Antarctica? I mean, it's, uh, you know, the nature is rough, the weather can be tough. Um, there are certain things probably required for a guide, right? Yeah, definitely. And because Antarctica is such a unique environment and because no humans really live there full time, mm -hmm. it's a really interesting question you ask because you can't really go and find an Antarctic guide. You have to you have to create one. You have to become a guide by going down there and working. But there are definitely mm -hmm. some sort of skills or competencies that I think are really valuable to have down there when you're starting out. So a few of the ones that I think are really important are risk assessment and risk management. So I think the ability to look around and sort of actively analyze the environment, be aware of what kinds of hazards are around you and what could become a hazard and how you're going to deal with it and to be constantly planning on your feet is, um, is a really valuable one. Another one which is kind of linked is situational awareness. So again, just that habit of constantly assessing what's happening around you, what could potentially change, where are the staff members that you're going to need potentially to move those boats into back to the ship or to start moving passengers back if the weather changes and that passenger's over there, that passenger was having a problem with their knee, how are they? Just really being used to keeping an eye on a whole lot of things at the same mm -hmm. time and being ready to respond. Other than that, I think that um, being comfortable working with others and working in a team and just loving working with people is really helpful because you're working 24 hours a day, <laughs> ultimately seven days a week, and often you'll do a stint of six to eight or ten weeks without a day off. So mm -hmm. you really kind of have to enjoy that level of intensity. How many people are you on, on board then going on a tour? Uh, it varies. I've worked on quite a few mm -hmm. different ships. The smallest ship had 50 passengers and a team of about eight or nine expedition staff. And the biggest mm -hmm. one had 180 passengers and a team of maybe 24 expedition staff. So very, very different work experiences there. And you mentioned before, so you did some training to get all these, you know, experience and expertise. I guess it's it's a lot also, you know, just going there and, and having this expertise or getting this expertise while doing things. But also you did some training. What did the training focus on? Right. So I had trained as an adventure guide, or they call it an outdoor recreation mm -hmm. guide in Australia, in the Blue Mountains where I live. And so okay. in that area, the main types of activities we do are cliff-based because there are lots of really big, beautiful sandstone cliffs around. So people go rock climbing and canyoneering and there's a lot of hiking. So the training that I did was sort of focused on lots of rope work. Um, so rock climbing, guiding, taking people down into these deep crevices, so canyons mm -hmm. through the water, uh, abseiling down waterfalls. So there was quite a lot of um, technical rope rescue involved in that. And then for the hiking, we did a lot of navigation. Uh, we did a bit of search and rescue. So there were lots of sort of broad transferable skills, things like facilitation, mm -hmm. interpreting the environment, but then a lot of really specific skills that every now and then they come into their own but weren't necessarily translatable to Antarctica. So... Mm -hmm. In terms of the specific training I did to prepare for work in Antarctica, there are a few tickets I got that weren't essential but were really, really helpful. And the first one was the STCW95, and that stands for the Standards of Training, Certification and Watchkeeping for Seafarers. And it's basically a general qualification for people who work on ships 
like ship's crew will do this kind of training and you do things like sea survival and firefighting. So that was a really useful ticket to get. I also did a powerboat driving course through the Royal Yachting Association. It's called the RYA Powerboat Level 2 course, and it's kind of an international standard for small uh, small vessel driving. It's just a couple of days, um, but that was also a really handy piece of training to have done. I also did a marine radio course and an avalanche awareness course, and I've finished most of my coxswain's qualification now through the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. It's a qualification that allows you to drive commercial vessels up to 12 metres in Australian waters, but it's also an internationally recognised kind of ticket. And that's another a useful kind of training to get for the, the watercraft operating. So yeah, definitely some useful training you can get before you head down to Antarctica. So you're not offering climbing tours in Antarctica, is that right? Or do you? No, not rock climbing, unfortunately. They do, <laughs> some of the trips do offer mountaineering and ski mountaineering and lots of different kinds mm. of activities on okay. shore, um, but not rock climbing. I see. Okay. And when you said you, you need to get this um, ability to assess the risk around you and see is something can become a hazard. Is that the stomach? Is that something you have in the, you know, in your stomach at some point uh, saying, okay, something is weird here. We have to, you know, leave this place. It's or? not quite as, um, as simple as that, but I think you're onto something with the stomach thing. Like I really think intuition does play a role and an increasing mm -hmm. role the more experienced you are because you do just sense things. I think intuition is probably a combination of different kinds of sensory input that you're kind of processing really quickly without consciously processing them. So I believe intuition is a really valuable tool. It's your body's mm -hmm. way of saying, I've picked up a whole bunch of stuff. You don't get it intellectually yet, but you need to listen. So I think listening to intuition is important. But for me, when it comes to risk assessment and management, it's kind of a it's a mentality. It's a way of looking at the world. For me, it means I'm constantly looking at the angle of the slope and what the surface is like and thinking about the passengers and what their strength, like what their stability and strength has been like over the trip and is anyone going to have problems mm -hmm. on that slope? Or I'm looking at some clouds starting to form on the horizon and I'm thinking, okay, what was in the forecast? What's happened in this location previously when we've had clouds forming in that location? And I'm already thinking, okay, how many zodiacs have we got? Where are our drivers? What plan can we put into place if things go you know, if things start to happen really quickly and maybe I'm on the radio to the, someone's on the radio to the captain saying, oh, have you seen what's happening over there? What's happening with the, with the wind? So it's just constantly monitoring, constantly being in mm -hmm. tune and engaged with, with changing conditions. Mm -hmm. I found the point very interesting. You mentioned that you look at the strength of the passengers. You get to know the passengers while you being on board and do the trip through Drake Passage. And then uh, you get to know who are your passengers. And then you can um, assess their ability to go out on the landing sites, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to watch the passengers. And I think it's... Um Something that I've found, it's a challenge on the much bigger ships because it's just, it's much more difficult to get an eye on everybody and to remember mm -hmm. everybody's face. But yeah, it's very helpful because I think a big part of what you want to do as a guide is facilitate people's experience and make it sort of extraordinary and allow them to kind of push themselves into an uncomfortable place that's still within their sort of, within a safe zone, within a sort of manageable but exciting kind of zone. And in order to do that, you kind of need to you need to be able to estimate where their limits are and, and what's going to be safe and what's going to be just beyond uncomfortable for them. Yeah, so it's really nice if you can get that kind of understanding of, of your um, passengers so that you can help them, you can help guide them through that. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, you know, um, additionally to looking at the forecast or rather the conditions around you, you also look at, at the people you are taking with you in, in the nature. Okay, Nina, you brought another song um, under control from the internet. Do you always have everything under control in the Antarctic? <laughs> oh, look, uh, sometimes we feel like we're <laughs> flying by the seat of our pants. But no, look, I think when it comes to tourism, we're, we're usually keeping things pretty pretty comfortable. I love this song. I just, I had this one season where I every morning I would wake up and I'd listen to this song. And that's why I wanted to to share it with you. Not because I think you always have to have things under control. I think sometimes there are things you can't control and that's fine. But I find this song really, it's just uplifting and, and fun. I actually looked at, at a website from one of these companies who offer Antarctic tours and I found very interesting sentences. When you look at some particular expedition they are offering and they say something like, Weather permitting, we may attempt our first landing in Antarctica by late afternoon. Or, for example, if you've chosen an optional activity, you have the option to do that whenever conditions allow. And of course, keen polar plungers will have the chance to fully immerse themselves in polar waters, conditions permitting. So everything is about conditions in Antarctica when you go there and uh, it can happen also that you may not be able to fly back to um, Punta Arenas the one day because King George Island has really bad conditions, right? Can you tell a little about these conditions, both when you go on the ship doing the tour south and also then when you are actually on the continent? Yeah, oh, that's so funny. It's great that you found that. The contingent language when you're describing and talking about traveling in Antarctica is fantastic and it's totally necessary because mm -hmm. everything, everything in Antarctica comes down to the conditions. Absolutely. So, yeah, when you cross the Drake Passage, you're basically crossing one of the most notorious stretches of ocean in the world. There's a constant stream of low-pressure systems kind of rotating all the way around Antarctica. They flow around Antarctica clockwise. So you've got this low pressure mm -hmm. followed by a short high pressure followed by a low pressure. And the Drake Passage is just notorious for big seas. I don't know if your, you or your listeners will have heard, um, but those sort of southern latitudes have been given nicknames by sailors. They've got like the roaring 40s and the furious 50s and the screaming 60s. Mm -hmm. And it's all about these really, um, really strong winds that tend to circulate around Antarctica, but particularly in the Drake Passage, because the Drake Passage is, so the distance between Argentina and the Antarctic Peninsula is the shortest distance between Antarctica and any other landmass. So at that point, the whole Southern Ocean is kind of funneled in through this I very see. narrow strait. So yeah, notoriously and, rough. And so people get seasick when they are at this place, huh? Yeah, they can. But the thing with the Drake is it's extremely capricious. So one day you might be going across and you're rocking through 12 meter seas and it's extremely rough and you can't see the horizon and there's spray oh flying off the top of the waves. Yeah, it can be extremely rough. But then you might go back in a week and it's mill pond calm. It feels like a lake. You can't even imagine that it was so rough a week earlier. So people talk about the Drake Lake and the Drake Shake when you're crossing this stretch of water and it really is like that. It just has so many different moods. So although it's got that constant sort of low pressure system coming around, there are these mm -hmm. brief periods of respite and you can have some very, very pleasant crossings as well. And does these conditions change very quickly or is it, you know, something that is more smoothly? Oh, that's an interesting question. And I think it's difficult for me to perceive because we're moving. 
it can seem like mm-hmm. it's changing quickly because we we may be traveling into a system or through a system. Exactly how quickly they change in reality, I don't know. Okay. Then you have passed Drake Passage, and then how how is it? Is it then a little bit smoother or? Yeah, generally. So once you get into the Antarctic Peninsula, you're in the shelter of the South Shetland Islands. And so for the most part, the landings that we do in there, they're very much sheltered from the swell. And wind can definitely pick up. But I've found in general, the weather in Antarctica on the peninsula there is is quite moderate. Like it's a maritime climate. It's summertime. The average temperature is probably around zero, but at certain times it can get up to sort of 15 or even 20 in a heat wave. It can be quite warm. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can get rain, you can get um, you can get snowfalls at, at certain times of the season. But in terms of exposure to those like wild and woolly sea elements, it's it's pretty different. The main interesting sort of conditions that we get down there are um, sea ice at different times of the season, particularly early season, but really any time you can get rafts of sea ice going in and out of bays, either on the winds or the tides. Yeah, and I suppose the winds and tides are also major drivers down in Antarctica that could sort of affect our plans or, or drive us to change them. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering, I mean, with the ongoing global changes, you know, climate, temperature, and so do you see that also in Antarctica over the years you've been there? It's hard for me to say because I've only been working there for five years, but I've definitely heard, mm-hmm. there are a few things that I've heard that are changing. I mean, it's indisputable that there are many Adelie penguin colonies that have completely disappeared. All the penguins have left oh. and they're gone, they've gone somewhere else. We don't really know where. There are also numerous chinstrap penguin colonies across the South Shetland Islands that are in rapid decline. They had a bunch of scientists go out there, I think it was the season of 2019-2020, and they found a lot of these chinstrap penguin colonies had declined by something upwards of 60 or 70 percent in I want to say 40 years from memory. So there are lots of um, changes in penguin distribution around the peninsula. But the thing that's strange is when you go down there, it's still beautiful and cold and fresh and there's so much ice. Like it's still extremely mm-hmm. cold. And there have been certain things that I've seen and I've asked sort of more seasoned guides, is that weird? Like, for example, one year we had a very unseasonal snow, big, big dump in late November. And so there were penguins around, they were sitting on nests, some of them were even sitting on eggs. And it was mm-hmm. snowing so much that the penguins were almost buried and they were kind of sticking their beaks up trying to keep themselves out of the snow because they didn't want to leave the eggs. And I sort of said, is this climate change? And they said, look, the weather here is really variable and it always has been. And so sometimes mm-hmm. it's difficult to sort of distinguish noise from signal, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I was also wondering, so you said you do the rubber boat tours, yeah, with the Zodiac uh, with people, maybe, is it also, can people also, you know, do their own kayak tours or something? I saw pictures. Is that also something you offer? Yeah, certain voyages, and it depends on the company and which trip. Some voyages just have activities on activities. They have stand-up paddleboarding and diving and snorkeling and kayaking, and they have ski touring and snowshoeing and all different kinds of activities that you can sign up to. Uh, in addition to the sort of regular landings. Because we are working for the Polar Prediction Project, which is a project to improve um, weather and sea ice uh, forecasts in the polar regions, both in the Arctic and in Antarctica. Um, we would like to talk a bit about um, what do you use when you plan your trips? 
maybe i mean on the on the longer term also maybe the companies who offer the expedition and you know at all do they look at some you know longer term forecast um, maybe you know that and then also when you are on the ship close to king george island you start probably you know looking at the weather and see what tours or what uh, activities you can offer to the passengers right how does this work and what are you looking at when making these decisions Mm, good question. Um, so in terms of long range, range forecasts and the kind of forecasting done by the companies, I don't really know. Yeah, look, I, I can't answer that question. I'm not really sure what, um, what involvement they have in, in forecasting and, and I'm not really sure what they'd be looking for. I think that the weather in Antarctica is kind of, it's unpredictable and I'm not sure if they could get anything from a long range forecast that would influence their decision making process from the mm -hmm. office. Uh, I think that probably the captain takes a longer look, but even then, the ships nowadays are so often so big and stable that they really are fantastic for these crossings, and you can cross relatively comfortably in quite big conditions. Probably the mm -hmm. um, the one area operationally that does really get influenced by poor weather in terms of coming and going to the peninsula is the fly-in, fly-out, which you kind of referred to mm -hmm. when you talked about King George Island. Yeah, so most trips that either get postponed or cancelled have a flight component because that um, runway can get shut down in really bad fog or big wind. Yeah. Yeah. But can it happen that, for example, you know, you, you get, you're booked from a company to do this tour and then eventually could it happen that they say, ah, we can't do this expedition because the weather has been so bad in the last weeks or so? No, I've never heard of that happening. It's never happened to me. I think that generally, and part of perhaps what makes the job really interesting and fun is that we go with whatever Antarctica offers and we make the best of it. And we kind of, we just accept the conditions that we're given and then we find a way to make the most of, of what we have. And there's always something, I mean, the weather in Antarctica, it doesn't matter if it's foggy and sleeting or blizzarding or sunny and warm, there's always something magical to be seen. And it's up to us as the guides to seek that out and to use the knowledge we have of the area to, um, to make sure we're giving the passengers the best possible experience and the best possible sort of understanding of Antarctica given the conditions. Like one of my favourite things is to go down when the conditions are really rough because to me that's when it feels really Antarctic, you know. It feels wild and remote and terrifying and exciting, whereas when you go down and the plane sailing, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's beautiful as well. What can I say? I think each has their own charm. So, yeah, no, we've never had to cancel a trip on the basis of the weather. In terms of our process, when we're like planning a visit to the peninsula and looking at the weather, there are a few things on our minds kind of all at the same time. So one is the itinerary given to us by the company because every trip's a little different and some of them have activities like kayaking or skiing or, or other things. So we need to think about good locations for those activities. Um, the other thing is the ship scheduler because chances are we already have some landing sites booked. There's actually an online booking system for different landing sites in Antarctica to prevent overcrowding and all of the sites are booked before the season even begins. So we'll take a look at that. There's usually a bit of flexibility. Uh, we might be able to change the bookings, but it's helpful to know what we're working with. And then, of course, we're looking at the weather. So we're factoring that in as well. We're looking at the sea ice charts, the wind, what's happening with precipitation and figuring out how to best structure the voyage so we can fit in as much as we can and in the best possible conditions. So we might start... Uh, at a landing site to the south and then travel north to go with the better weather or it might go the opposite way or maybe we'll just stay in one small area to make the most of the good weather there. It just, it varies from trip to trip. 
But yeah, there are some activities that are really, really weather dependent, like uh, overnight camping, which we offer on some trips, and barbecues on the deck and things like that, where you just really want to have good weather. And then, of course, there's a polar plunge, <laughs> which is much more pleasant in good weather as well. I think that's the perfect moment to um, have another song from you, The Storm from Boy and Bear. I think it's an Australian band, right? Yeah, it is an Australian band. And I love these guys. I've listened to a lot of their music when I'm out hiking in the mountains. I find that they're just, yeah, very kind of evocative songs. I don't know. They just speak to me of the mountains. I love them. So Nina, I mentioned already, we, we would be interesting to know a little bit more what, what actually do you use? Do you have an app or something? Uh, you look at this with your team to make a decision on, on particular activity you can offer to the um, passengers um, a, a particular day in the Antarctic. Yeah, there are a lot of different resources that we use to find out what's happening with the wind, with the local sea ice, uh, with swell and fog and rain, like all different kinds of um, parameters with the weather. But there are two that I think we use the most. And my favorite one is um, it's an app called Windy or windy.com. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's sort of emerged as a bit of a favorite, I think, with a lot of guides in Antarctica. Um, it's particularly great for charting the weather. It has a really great sort of visual representation of what's happening. Sorry, not the weather, the wind, um, which makes sense with the name. Uh, but it also gives you a whole lot of other metrics, precipitation, tides, swell, that kind of thing. So that's a really helpful resource. Um, the other thing we use a fair bit is um, grib files. So you can get them. There's a website called Zygrib, and I think this is commonly used by sailors. It's like a very small file, like a small file mm -hmm. size that you can download, and you can actually select which um, weather parameters you'd like to chart, And you can download, I think every few days you get a, an email and you can download the file. Um, I don't actually do that myself, but I've looked at these grib files with, um, with my expedition leaders and we, they're a really good resource as well, particularly for sort of medium range for um, forecasting, like over several days. You can sort of discern okay. patterns, you can get the barometric pressure and that kind of thing. Who was the one who offers this? I don't actually know who, you don't know. who does them. So there's a website we use, Zygrib. Mm -hmm. I think, I know that we get some sea charts from a Norwegian institute, but I couldn't tell you specifically which one because, again, it's not my role. I haven't downloaded okay. it myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry I don't have the answer for that one. Yeah. No, that, that's no problem. So we will put the link to this uh, resource in, in the show notes and so people can explore that. Uh, that would be interesting. The windy.com app has been mentioned already by um, the guests of our um, last episode, Lasse Rabenstein and Panayotis uh, Contouris from uh, Drift and Noise, a startup company to um, offer um, services in weather forecasting and sea ice mainly. And so, yeah, windy.com is mentioned very often. I think many people use it, have that on the phone. I was wondering, because uh, Lasse and Panos, they are offering um, an app on sea ice. Would that also be something you would like to use in the Antarctic? Yeah, I'd be really interested in seeing what we can do to sort of enhance our sea ice forecasting. Because at the moment, I think we get a sea ice grip file like once a week. And so it gets outdated pretty rapidly. And the files are great. They have a lot of detail and they show density of ice in different locations. But the ice is constantly moving with the tides and the winds. And so we tend to lean quite heavily on a couple of things. One is radioing other operators who've been in the area so we can see where people have been. 
um, and we can radio people who've made a landing where we're planning to go tomorrow and ask what the conditions were like and what the sea ice was like. And the other thing mm-hmm. we do a lot of, which I kind of wouldn't like to stop because I think it's lovely, is we'll just go and have a look. Sometimes if we're not sure mm-hmm. and it looks on the chart like, oh, look, there's some ice there but we're not certain, we can just go and, and take a look. And that can be good for a couple of reasons. Like one, it's nice for the passengers to see a whole a bunch of sea ice. It's really exciting. And the other thing is sometimes passengers have chosen a particular itinerary because they want to do something special. For example, they might want to go into the Weddell Sea or down into the Antarctic Circle and quite often – those areas are where you'll find this kind of sea ice that's a bit impenetrable. And so mm-hmm. it's really worth going to the edge and taking a look and, and showing people, wow, you, you know, that's really the edge of where we can go. The sea ice there is impassable and you can kind of see it for yourself. So in terms of sea ice forecasting, I'm not sure whether it would necessarily change our approach in terms of, you know, preventing us from going to take a look. But, yeah, it would definitely be interesting to see if if we can do more with the sea ice forecasting because once a week, it's not that that frequent, is it really nowadays? Exactly. That that was that was my point. I was thinking so once a week is is uh, not not a lot. So with with the CIS app, where would you have daily updates? That would probably be, be be of use for you, right? Oh yeah, I'm sure that would be used a lot. <laughs> I think I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, but always you mentioned you always uh, like to go out and uh, watch yourself how the conditions are. So you probably take a rubber boat and then you go to the CS edge and um, yeah, assess this uh, conditions yourself or how is that be done? A lot of our weather, like not so much the planning, but on the spot on the day, a lot of our weather assessment is done through observation. Uh, often we can do it from the ship. Like a lot of the time with sea ice, we can kind of see what's happening from the bridge. So usually when we arrive at a landing site, we'll all go up on the bridge and we'll take a look around. We'll see what the wind's doing. We'll see what the weather's doing. But there are definitely some landing sites where we'll go out for a little recce. We'll take the boats out and and actually check out the conditions on the ground. And usually that's when we're doing surf landings. So when we're landing in areas where there are surf beaches and we're operating in a bit of swell, because often you can't really tell what the swell's doing on the beach from the ship. So in those cases, yeah, we'll take the Zodiacs out, usually a couple, and we'll just go right up to the landing site and see what the swell's doing. Hopefully the landing site has a little bit of shelter. And often you find when you look at it from the ship, it looks like it's not doable. But when you tuck into the bay, you find that actually, oh, it's manageable. So yeah, in those cases, we definitely would recce in the boats and that's a lot of fun. Okay. And and that you do without the passengers, right? Yeah. Or you take them with you? No, no, without the passengers, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. For safety reasons. Yeah. That's right. Okay. I was I was going back a little bit on on the decisions you make. You are a team of guides on the ship, right? So you always have um, consultation amongst everybody of you. So it depends a little bit on the team um, and on the size of the team. So all teams will have an expedition leader and usually an assistant expedition leader, sometimes also a deputy expedition leader. And so those okay. people are usually the most experienced people in the team. And they will generally have spent many, many seasons in Antarctica looking at the conditions, working in them, looking at the weather forecasts, working under more experienced people. And so they have a huge wealth of knowledge to kind of draw on in making these decisions. And then depending on the size of the team, the decisions might be made independently by the leadership team or they might be made collaboratively, particularly in a small team where everyone's quite experienced. They'll often seek out everybody's input and everybody will be there together having a chat about what the different parameters are, which decision we should make, what our options are, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I see. Okay. In a perfect world, what additional um, environmental data um, would you like to see in the future 
in products um, implemented. You know, we mentioned already, so you, wind is a, a very important thing. Um, what other um, parameters would you like to see maybe? Do you mean in terms of forecasting data? Yes, yes. This is a little bit, potentially a little bit off topic, but one of the things that I would <laughs> really love to have more or better forecasting data on is volcanic activity. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's sort of related to weather in my mind. I mean, it's obviously, it's tectonic action. But yeah, look, there are a couple of active volcanoes in the area where we operate, including one of our most popular landing sites. And there are some uh, resources that we can use around prediction. But I, I think that it would be great if we could enhance those a little bit. I think that would be really fantastic to just have a little bit more up-to-date and um, kind of easy-to-access information about, about the changes in that area, particularly Deception Island. Um, is that because you would not go there if there would be more activity or would you go there to, you know, show the passengers, okay, there's volcanic activity in Antarctica? Oh, in my view, absolutely be part of a risk assessment and we'd use the information to um, minimize our exposure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. Not, not to <laughs> seek it out. That would be my, yeah, my approach for sure. Yeah, in terms of other metrics, Probably the one other area that we could really benefit from a bit more knowledge in is the bathymetry, so the actual topography, the subsea topography. I think there are still quite a few relatively uncharted areas and it would be really great to have more data on submerged rocks and reefs and items in those areas. Good. You brought another song, um, Cool Change from the Little River Band. Oh, yes, this is a classic. I was actually, I came across this song, it was only this year, I think, and I was out working in the desert and it had been over 12 months since I'd been in Antarctica and this song came on and there's this line, how does it go? Something about like craving the ocean and the whales being your friends and it just kind of gave me goosebumps thinking about, oh, wow, that was my life a while ago and how much I miss that incredible place and how much I feel like a cool change. So this is a song for Antarctica. So let's get some goosebumps with Cool Chain from Little River Band. Nina, I would I would like to give you some sentences and uh, you can uh, complete these. Okay, let's go. When I see the ocean, I feel at peace. And when I see the first sea ice. Ooh, yeah, that's an exciting moment. <laughs> when I'm in Antarctica, There's really nowhere else I want to be in that moment. My work as an Antarctic tour guide is? Currently not available to me. <laughs> because of COVID? Yeah. It's not possible? So no expedition since a year and a half now? Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. So you really look forward to going back? I yeah. Guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two more sentences. In five years from now... Antarctica should be a place that a lot more people understand and a lot more people see as extremely significant for the rest of humanity or for the rest of our future. Yeah, for all of humanity. Yeah. And last sentence. In terms of weather forecasting during my expeditions, I would wish for... Maybe something like the um, off-vessel risk assessment tool that was just recently brought out by the Association of Arctic and Expedition Cruise Operators. I think something similar to this for the Antarctic environment could be a really valuable tool. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you explain this more? So what is in this assessment, risk assessment? Yeah, tool? so my understanding, and I haven't used it myself, and it's just actually mm -hmm. 
it was launched in spring last year, so it's quite new. But the idea is that it, it's a, a tool that helps field staff carry out risk assessments before doing landings. So I think that it has information related to that specific landing, like real-time information related to that site, which you can <coughs> feed into it and then assess the risk before you make that landing. I see. Okay. So maybe we have a recommendation here for Antarctica to launch such a tool. So thank you, Nina, very much for being with me today, um, joining us from Australia. Um, it's getting later <laughs> um, evening in, in um, your place and telling us more about your work in Antarctica. And I would like to thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Nina. You can visit her website also. We put um, the link to her website in the show notes. It's uh, Nina Gallo dot squarespace.com and also if you have any questions or any feedback uh, to us please send an email to polarprediction at uh, gmail.com and uh, also watch out for the next episodes of the ice pod and find more about the polar prediction project at polarprediction.net and on our social media accounts at polar prediction so with this uh, thank you very much again nina Goodbye from Bremen to Australia and to the world. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Ice Pod, a podcast about polar science and the people. Find more information on our website, polarprediction.net, or give us feedback. Just send us an email to polarprediction at gmail.com. You can find all the links in our show notes.